0: All right, good morning, everyone. So, Good morning. Good morning. All right. So uh, there are uh, handouts in the back if you did not get a copy. Uh, this morning, we are in Lesson 11 and working through Chapter 7. So starting Chapter 7 this morning of Sam Renahan's book, Deity and Decree. Now, Chapter 7 is titled, as you can see on your notes, The Unity of the Persons. Now, as my habit has been and will continue to be, uh, we're going to just start us out with some catechism questions. And again, because the point of catechism is to help with memory, right? So it's one thing for us to learn, but it's another thing for us to memorize. And so um, it's a quick way for us to memorize theology. So let's do this together. I'll, I'll start us with a question, and then we'll all respond corporately with the answer. So question eight on your notes. Are there more gods than one? Answer. There is but one only, the living and true God. Question nine. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. All right, excellent. And then on your notes, as part of the discussion has been That this Sunday school or teaching hour has really been aimed to help us better understand the scripture as it's been explained in our confession of faith, the things that we believe, for chapter two and chapter three of our confession. So the last couple of weeks, Pastor Des has been hitting on the Trinity and working through the biblical foundation, right, oneness and um, uh, and then plurality or, you know, the three persons. And we, we find this in uh, Chapter 2 of our Confession uh, of God, and uh, specifically in Paragraph 3. So we have this here. And if I can have a volunteer on your notes read uh, Paragraph 3, where it starts, In this divine and infinite being. Who would be willing to, to read that? Yeah, right? This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning, and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. That's awesome. Yeah, and just even that last section there, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? So. Uh, Pastor Des is going to have the joy of getting to work through that in, uh, in chapter 8, which is really exciting, right? Especially when you take some time just to think about that, right? The, uh, with, with how the doctrine of the Trinity gets worked out. So but this morning, we're going to focus on this, right? So we're going to focus on what does it mean uh, when we think about the unity of God, this one essence, undivided, right? But in three persons, in three subsistences, right? To use this technical term, or Three personal relations. Now, uh, just by way of summary, as we think about last week, so Pastor Des hit on distinction and unity, right? So we want to make that there, it's really clear in scripture, there is one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, right? Um, the Shema, right? Hero Israel, right? The Lord, our God, the Lord is one, right? He's one God. But then also that within the three persons, they are distinct, right they have um, uh, uh, peculiar or personal properties right now now again, when we start using this language, we're trying to distinguish and make these distinctions that are technical so I, I understand um, right when we get done, our, our brains might be hurting, but that's not a bad thing right it's good to be stretched, especially as we think about the doctrine of God um, so so when Pastor Des was hitting on that, right? We thought about uh, persons, right, as a, a colloquial term that we use, uh, personal relations, right? How does the father relate to the son who relates to the spirit? And, and we use this uh, phrase uh, from, from, last, from last week, personal properties. So there's something that can be described of the father that cannot be described of the son or the spirit. And there's something that we can describe the son that can't be used to describe the Father or the Spirit, right? And those three terms were paternity, filiation, and spiration. Now, those are terms that we do not use every day, right? Um, Yeah, paternity is probably the closest one. But those three terms are really important, right? And they've been really important in the history of the church because only the Father has paternity. Only the Father is the one who eternally Begets the son. All right. Where we we use this phrase that the son is um, uh, generated eternally from the father, like our confession says um, uh, specifically that the son is eternally begotten. So only the father is the one who begets, right? But the son is begotten, right? So we, so we make that nuance, and then the spirit. Now we use this term spiration. It has this idea of breathing, right? That this, this going out, right? And so the spirit is alone the one who is spirated. Now, uh, he or, or, or another phrase that like our confession will use is proceeds. So spiration, right, is like right, that, that like put, pushing forth of air. And so, um, so we can use the term spiration or we can use the term proceeding, that the spirit is the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. So Father, Son, and Spirit are all nuanced. They're all distinguished. Even though they have the same essence, the same eternity, the same unchangeable nature, the same infinity, right? The same immensity, right? All, all the things that we kind of covered when we, when we talked about what is God, right? So um, so it's helpful for us as we make these nuances. We talk about distinctions between the three persons. And now what we're going to do is kind of bring it back. Let's now think about what that means to say these things about the three, Father, Son, and Spirit, but yet who have one undivided essence. So, so as, we, as we get started, uh, in, in the intro, and I thought this was helpful from Samuel Renahan, he starts with a quote, uh, and he says here, having distinguished the three subsistences, right, which is the technical term that, that we're using for persons, the three subsistences of the Trinity, not as three beings or three essences, right? It is not tritheism, right? Three gods. But as the divine essence subsisting in the Father eternally, beginning the Son, the Son being begotten, and the Spirit proceeding eternally from the Father and Son, we can return to the unity of the Trinity, the triunity of God. Now, what are we going to do? So in this chapter, he says... We will consider not only the union of the three persons, but also various errors that destroy the unity of the Trinity and that destroy, likewise, orthodox theology proper. Now, so that is what we're going to focus on here. And when we think about this, we're trying to keep two things straight. We're trying to keep God's essence straight, if you will. Right? Think of chapter, or not chapter, um, question seven from the catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, right? And we, we, we go on, right? So we, th- we can think of that as God's whatness, right? And, and, and his whatness is not going to be, you know, theologically or technically correct, but just by way of, you know, colloquial speech, that it, God's whatness, right? We think of his essence, that one undivided essence. And then when we think of who, we think of the three persons, right? So we're going to be thinking what and who working together. So on your notes, under part one where it says each one having the whole essence. So now we're going to think about this undivided essence in three persons. And again, we're going to use grammar that's going to be stretched here, right? Because when you have one person, it is one being. And yet with the Trinity, it's not so. You have one being with three persons, but it is not Divided, And again, our grammar and our speech is, at this point, we're going to feel that tension, right? Where things are not going to sound grammatically correct, but yet they are theologically correct. And that is important. We will take theology over grammar right at this point. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, so, and I thought what, what Pastor Jazz used last full, last full, last week in regarding the definition for subsistence was helpful, where he quoted uh, William Ames, uh, uh, one of the uh, Puritans, where he said, as the manner of being of God is his one essence so far as it has personal properties. So again, we're using this technical language to help describe person, but it's person that's nuanced from how we necessarily understand it as individual humans. And And we'll get into that a little bit more. So, as Renahan pointed out, what I wanted to do is start out with a potential error for the church to avoid. To confuse the one essence of God with the personal relations or subsistences. And this error is introduced when we incorrectly attribute submission or subordination in the Godhead, right? Now, we're going to talk about where it is correct and where it is incorrect. Incorrect And this nuance is really important, right? So it is correct to speak of the son as from the father in regards to his personal relation within the Trinity. With regards to his subsistence or what we've talked about, his manner or his way of being. In this sense, there is a subordination within, and this is a key word, the mode of subsistence with regard to the Son's personal relation. And this would also apply to the Spirit. But as to God's one essence, and again, this is where we're just going to keep going back and forth between these two. There is no subordination when we speak to essence between any of the three persons. The Son is fully equal to the Father, and the Spirit is fully equal to the Father, right? When we talk about the essence the father is not greater to the son or to the spirit when we speak of god's one undivided essence when we talk about eternity or power or authority in church history this error of confusing the two is known as subordinationism and was found in some in uh, early theologians uh, like for example origen uh, held a view like this where he started to go into subordination, that the son was eternally subordinate to the father, not only in regards to mode or personal relation that the son is from the father, but to the very essence, uh, um, uh, that the son's essence uh, from that standpoint uh, is is almost in, in some sense less than the father. Now, uh, I've, I've got a quote here on your notes from Sam Waldron in his uh, exposition of the 1689. He says here, "The historic doctrine of the church and its creeds is that as to their essence, the Son and Spirit are equal in power and glory to the Father." Right. So, if you want to just underline or circle that word "essence," but as to their persons, right, or personal relations or subsistences, right, whatever you want to fill in there, they are eternally generated. And eternally proceed from the Father. Thus, as to their essence, they are self-existent, while as to their persons, they are eternally derived from the Father. Now, again, we're going to use language, and it seems like, okay, are, are we, is there some kind of crossover here? And the point is, we're trying to help make these nuances and distinctions so we can correctly, correctly use language. Um, uh, biblical speech or, 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 or theologically correct speech about the Lord. Now, next on your notes, you'll see a quote here from Louis Burkhoff that I thought was really helpful. And in fact, I did you the favor and I did some of the underlining myself. So you're welcome. Don't tell me, uh, you never. I never gave you guys anything. All right. <laughs> so uh, can I have a um, I was going to say theologian uh, Uh, Because I was thinking of Burkhoff. Can I have a volunteer? So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, um, the quote there from Burkhoff, starting with generation. Yeah, go ahead, Crystal. Generation, with regard to the sun, and procession, with regard to the spirit, take place within the divine being and imply a certain subordination as to the manner of personal subsistence, but no subordination as far as the possession of the divine essence is concerned. All right, excellent. So again... Making this nuance is really important as we think about um, and trying to use correct theological language. Now, again, and we've, and we've said this a couple of times. We are using technical terms that are not used in everyday speech when you're at the grocery store, right? And that's okay. That is okay. Because we have 2,000 years of church history, and using these terms that have been developed and used and have gone through the tests Right, of history, we benefit from them. So we, we don't want to not use them. Um, uh, in, in fact, that could be uh, to, to, to the missing out of the benefit they provide. So now we're going to use two other terms to help nuance these personal relations. And that's going to be God in himself and God of himself. But this is going to be specific to the three persons. So for example, uh, um, uh, we have you know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then using this phrase, in himself and of himself, where you can see that on your notes. And here we've got a quote from Samuel Renahan that I thought was really helpful. To, because we're using this language, and it's going to capture the in himself speaks to essence. And the of himself speaks to essence. Personal relation or subsistence. The manner and the mode of the subsistence. So um, if I can have a volunteer, who would be willing to read that next quote there from Renahan on your notes. Because the Father. Because the Father is the divine essence subsisting in the Father who he gets. The Father is God in and of himself. The Son and the Holy Spirit are also God in themselves, but not the all right, excellent. So, and this is where we're getting into the personal relations, because the father, he is not begotten, right? Who, who is the one who's begotten? That's the son, right? That's the personal property of the son. But the father is the one who begets. So the father, in regards to his personal relation, is, in him, is, is, um, uh, is of himself, but the son and the spirit Right? They are eternally derived from the Father right? in regards to that personal relation or that mode of subsistence. The Son is God in himself. Right? He has all eternity, immensity, he's all powerful, and he has all of that in himself. Right, And yet, as the eternally begotten by the Father, right, he is not of himself. But he is eternally of the Father, right? So he is not of himself, but instead of the Father. And when we say that the Son, um, uh, uh, that the Son uh, is God in Himself, it's not that he has part of the divine essence, but he has the whole undivided essence in Himself, right? And the Spirit likewise has the whole undivided essence in himself. So, so when we make that nuance, we are saying that the Son and the Spirit are equal in power, glory, authority, wisdom, and holiness, but in regards to the manner or way in which they personally relate within the Godhead, it is not of the Spirit or the Son, but it is of the Father. Now, again, just to circle back with the error that we saw within uh, the early church theologian Origen, the Son, in this sense, does not get his Godness, his essence from the Father, because the Son has the whole undivided essence in himself, right? But he has from the Father that personal relation. That has existed for all eternity as the eternally begotten one. So I know that's technical language. What I want us to do now is, is go uh, open your Bibles and go to John chapter 10. So when, 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 what we're trying to do is capture language, uh, which, which a, a lot of Pastor Des captured from the previous two weeks, working on that biblical foundation, right? The biblical foundation of God's oneness and then also uh, the three persons. But what I want to do is look at one text. It's, uh, it's in John chapter 10. And it is uh, from uh, 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 the, the Good Shepherd, right? Where Jesus says that he is the Good Shepherd, right? One of, the, one, of, one of the several I am statements that we find in the book of John pointing to Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as God. Then one of those texts... As we get into the Good Shepherd, in John chapter 10, look at me, in, in starting in verse 28. If I could have someone read verses 28 through 30. Yeah, Norm. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All right, so h- here we see the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, talking about right, giving his people eternal life, and then talking about his Father who has given them to him. And then in verse 30, speaking of, notice this, the oneness of the divine essence. So where it says here, I and the Father... Are one. They share in the same undivided essence, right? Which means when Jesus says that, he is saying, I am God in the flesh. I have the same nature and essence as Yahweh, right? Now, if you were a good Bible believing Jew, right, and let's say you're caught off guard, and someone claims to be God, who is a human, how may you respond? What, what do you think may happen if you think this person's wrong? What would you accuse them of? What's that? Blasphemy, right? That they are speaking evil of God. How dare you say that God is some, some, some man who is evil, who has a sinful nature, right? Just like we do, right? Now look in your Bibles and look what happens in verse 31, Right? the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, right? Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And then look at verse 33, right? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, right? So we see here in this text in verse 30, that both, The Father and the Son are equal in how they share the undivided essence of God, that they both are God, right? And and you see that, right, where he says at the end of verse 33, but for blasphemy, right, that's that's why they want to stone him, because you, being a man, make yourself what? God, right? So that's the right way for us to see and take that. Now we've got a quote here from, from Renahan, and it says here, starting with the the result is that the essence of the Son is the divine essence. The Son has the whole undivided divine essence. He is therefore God in himself. But his subsistence, the way in which he has the whole divine essence, is from the Father. And this I thought was really helpful. So, if you wanted to circle, underline, highlight, you know, write a bunch of cool notes, this is it. He is God in himself, right, in regards to essence, but not of himself, subsistence or manner of being or personal relation. And I really liked here, uh, I've got a couple Burkhoff quotes that I just thought really helped summarize this. Because if you're like me, there was a lot of ground that had to be tilled for this to, to feel like um, you're scanning it and it's not coming up with a void transaction, right? Like nothing actually processed. So just, so, and that was my goal. We're just going to keep going over just to help, help kind of you know, plow through some of that ground to help us understand this mystery. And we're, we're going to see that with this second Burkhoff quote. Uh, say that five times fast. Um, that I thought really captured it. So if I can have a volunteer read that first Burkhoff quote with the whole undivided essence. Yeah, Pastor Jess. The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. This means that the divine essence is not divided among the three persons, but is wholly with all its perfections in each one of the persons so that they have a numerical unity of essence the divine nature is distinguished from the human nature in that it can subsist wholly and indivisibly in more than one person. While three persons among men have only a specific unity of nature or essence, that is, sharing the same kind of nature or essence, the persons of the Godhead have the numerical unity of essence, that is, that it possesses the identical essence. Yes. And I really like, he captured a couple of ideas that we've already stated once but that I found in particular very helpful, right? That uh, when he talks about, like uh, in, in that uh, second sentence at the very end, where he talks about, but is holy with all its perfection in each one of the persons, so that they have a numerical unity of essence, meaning that there is one essence, right? And, then, and, and again, it, it's, it is okay and good for us to use the theological language of persons or personhood, when we talk about the Trinity, but when we use that language, we need to be aware of the baggage that we bring because when we think of persons, who do we normally think of first and foremost? Right? We think of ourselves. We think of people. We think of humanity. Right? And, and I think what he says here is, is helpful. where He says uh, in, in, the, in the fourth sentence, while three persons among men have only a specific unity of nature or essence, meaning you have three people and you have... Three beings, right? Three essences, though they share the same kind of nature or essence, right? So there's a similarity between them, but they are not the same. But yet, with the Lord, this is this is this is where it gets, this is where it's different, and and that's where I think what he says helpful here, where he says, um, uh, but the persons in the Godhead have a numerical unity of essence that is possessed the identical essence. So and I know I know uh, Pastor as you covered this a couple of weeks ago, but again, by way of reminder, I think that's really helpful, right? So when we talk about persons, we're talking about personal relations, but we're talking about something that's going to stretch our mind because we're talking about an undivided essence within three persons, right? And again, this is going to stretch grammar and other things because it, it, it stretches our mind. And, and if you will, go to that next quote with Burkhoff. Because how should we handle uh, uh, what, what uh, J.I. Packer, when he talked about uh, sovereign, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, he called it uh, antinomies. So these are seeming contradictions. How should Christians, when we start to think of things so weighty and so high and so heavy, right, where it, it, it gets to the point where we're like, okay, well, is that a contradiction? Is it, are we talking about things that, that, that do not logically make sense, but instead, to us, they are seemingly like that, right? And yet, it is appropriate for us when we get to these points to respond in worship. Because it points to God's ultimate incomprehensibility, that we cannot know God as he knows himself. But we can have true knowledge of God in how he has revealed himself. And we can take great comfort, great comfort from that. And I think Burkhoff captures that here. So he says, it is especially when we reflect on the relation of the three persons to the divine essence that all analogies fail us. Right? You can just put a period there and just say amen. Right? Right? Um, Every analogy you've heard of the Trinity, right, falls into this category, right? Because at some level, it will fail us. And he says, and we become deeply conscious of the fact that the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. It is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. Just as human nature is too rich and too full to be embodied in a single individual, And comes to its adequate expression only in humanity as a whole. And I love this here. So the divine being unfolds itself in its fullness only in its threefold subsistence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Isn't that beautiful? The incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. So, before we go to number two. Any questions or any thoughts? As we uh, as, as as we press forward. All right, all right. Let's cu- let's let's keep pressing forward then. All right. So, next one, number two, pericorosis. Now, if subsistence was a term that was not used at the grocery store, this one definitely disqualifies, right? This is going to be another one. Now, what is this term? So, this is a, a Greek term that was used by the early church. To help understand, when we talk about the personal relations of the one undivided essence, we're talking about, um, if if you will, how the three share the same space, right? Um, Now, again, God, you know, he's not contained by space, but, but to use that language, right? How the Father is in the Son and the Spirit, and how the Son is in the Father and the Spirit, and how the Spirit is in the Father and in the Son, right? How... All three are in themselves because they share the one undivided essence. Right. And I want to say, yes, and, and that is what that quote from Samuel Renahan gets at there. So it is that the three are each in each other. And I want to look at a couple texts to help us see this. Right? So, uh, so we're in John, and, and really, um, uh, turn me to John 14. Go, let's go to John 14. And um, you know, as you're going to John 14, it is really fascinating, right? When, when you read the Gospels, right? You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Um, we call them the, the Synoptics, right? John sticks out, right? And, and even from the beginning of John 1, he's letting you know that he. he He's taking an approach that's a little bit more high or heavenly, if you will, right? They get started, right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're tying it back into the Old Testament. And what is John doing? He's going all the way back from eternity past, right? And is showing us how the Son is with the Father from all eternity as, as Logos, right? And so we see that over and over and over again, right? And we see that in the I Am statements of Jesus. So, so this is one of those where it's like we get a a little peek into into the glory of the Godhead. If I can have a volunteer, who'd be willing to read verses 8 through 11 of John chapter 14? All right, Crystal. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now that's interesting, right? So here, Jesus is using this language about He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. And then notice in verse 11, right, where he says, or else believe on account of what? The works themselves, right? So it's pointing at when you see the works of the Son of God, your response should be, he has the same essence as the Father, right? Or like you're like Philip, show us the Father, And Jesus is like, you are looking, right? When you see me, uh, you are seeing, um, uh, uh, where where he says, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, right? So between the Father and the Son, there's this shared essence. And we can use this language of in. The Father is in the Son. And the Son is in the Father. Now I'm gonna. Uh, I, I've got a quote on here, and I um, uh, I, I robbed you guys. All right, so I'm, I'm I'm equal, I guess. I gave you something, and now I robbed you. I should have put this on here, and I did not. So there's a there's a helpful John Gill quote. Now who is John Gill? This is going to be a shameless plug for John Gill. John Gill has written an entire commentary in the Bible, as one of our particular Baptists, right? So Calvinistic confessional Baptist uh, of the entire Bible. And and you know what the you know what the beauty of it is. All online for free. So you can, you, can, you can soak that up. But Gil, I thought, was really helpful here. And I want to read him where, he says, where, he say, where it says, And the Father in me. He says, Phrases which are expressive of the sameness of nature in the Father and the Son, of the Son's perfect equality with the Father, since the Son is as much in the Father as the Father is in the Son. Notice that, right? In as much as the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. And also of the personal distinction there is between them. For nothing with propriety can be said to be in itself. The Father must be distinct from the Son who is in Him. And the Son must be distinct from the Father in whom He is. The Father and Son, though of one And the same nature cannot be one and the same person. Now, isn't that a beautiful way to express how the Father is in the Son, and yet they're still distinct, and yet there is one nature? So, now, I thought by way of clarification, uh, it could could be good. Go with me down um, to verse 20, uh, but by way of nuance, because... Jesus then does something, and, and uh, I don't want it to be misunderstood. So look with me in verse 20, where Jesus continues on. He's telling them about the helper, right? Chapters you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father. And then what he, said, he says, and you in me, and I in you. Now, does this mean that believers now come to have the same one essence of God? Right? No. It does not. Right? So then, what does this mean? What what, what is this referring to? So, think of it this way. There is a union between the Father, Son, and Spirit through the same essence. But then, with believers to the Godhead, there is a union... That we have in Christ, right? So we hear this language that we are in Christ. And so by being in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who is the Spirit of the Father. So there's this sense in which all three persons of the Trinity, right, uh, are, are, are dwelling in and with the believer, right? Because it's the Spirit of the Father, it's the Spirit of Christ, it's the Spirit of God who is in you. Right? So there's this sense in which we share that by way of union, but not by way of deification, by somehow us becoming God, right? Or becoming God uh, in, in, in sharing in that same essence. So turn with me uh, in your Bibles just, just by way. Um, I thought this one, there, there's two other verses I want us to look at that I thought were helpful. So go to First John, so uh, right before Revelation, to John's letters. In first John chapter one, and if I can have a volunteer, someone read verses one and two. First uh, John chapter one, verses one and two. Yes. So, so we see in its similar language that's used in John chapter 1, right, that the Logos, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So they're distinct and yet eternally existing together in that one essence, as we see, which was with the Father, right, and then was made manifest. And then lastly, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's take a look here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is an excellent passage, right, as we, as we think about the reality of being able to know God in a saving way, the role of the Spirit, right? But look with me in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2. If someone would be willing to read chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in it? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So notice here, you can't understand someone's thoughts unless you are them, right? And so the, so the thoughts of God are fully understood by the spirit, and then we would fill in the because, because the spirit is God, because the Spirit is in the Father and in the Son because the Spirit shares the same what? The same one undivided essence of God, right? And so we see, as, as, as we look at some of these texts and we think about this theologically as it comes together, we see that very thing. So how does Scripture start to use some of this unity language, this oneness language, right? I and the Father are one, right? Only, uh, only the spirit of a man will know his thoughts, and so no one knows the, th- the thoughts of God except the spirit of God because they share the same essence. All right, so lastly, on your notes, we've got this quote here from Samuel Renahan as we come to a close. Let's go ahead and let me, uh, I'll go ahead and read that. He starts by saying, by virtue of the divine essence being numerically one, and the three persons being distinctions of subsistence and the one divine essence, they are indivisibly united. Each one has the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Right? And again, I almost feel like I read that, and I need to go back to Burkhoff, right? It is the glory, uh, uh, it is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead right this doctrine connects particularly with the aseity and perfection the glory and felicity of god god does not need creation because god is a perfect fullness of communion in himself the father loves the son and the spirit eternally the son loves the father and the Spirit eternally. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son eternally. Creation, and this is beautiful, creation is therefore the theater, not the source of God's glory and blessedness. Right? How does God's glory get put on display and manifest? It's in creation. God does not derive His glory or blessedness from creation. But instead, manifests it, it there. So that comes to a close as we've thought about uh, God, the one undivided essence, and as we've thought about the way in which that can be expressed with that with that odd Greek term, perichoresis. So, with that, do we have any questions or comments uh, or thoughts as we've worked through some uh, some pretty technical stuff as we think about the Godhead? Yeah, Crystal. Let's take the definition of this word one more time. Which one? Perry caresses? Yes. Um, actually, I think, let me look. Did I put that? I wrote it down if you want to what you said. Yes. Uh, said, go ahead, Sabrina. A Greek term used by the early church to help us understand how the three share the same space, meaning essence. Yes. Yes. Yep. All right, excellent. Well, let's go ahead. Let's thank the Lord for our time, and, uh, and, and we'll be dismissed. Father, Son, and Spirit, it is with joy to confess the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead, how three persons with one undivided essence that just stretches our mind, that you are holy, you are not like us, and that is the best thing for us, and how we as your creatures, redeemed in the blood of Jesus, glory, that we can know you, that you've revealed yourself, that you've drawn us to you in sovereign grace, and that truly we stand at the foothills of what feel like the Alps. And so we pray that you would please fill us with a greater sense of awe and glory as we behold you, as you've revealed yourself in your word through the power of the Spirit, and bless Bless the preaching of the word. Empower Pastor Des, and may we benefit from it. In your name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.